Hey everyone, welcome to The Recruitment Show. We are talking about all of the major topics that people are discussing right now. Everything recruiting, future of work, and everything in between. I've got guests from all over the world to come and share their perspective and their thoughts and feelings and all of that stuff on these key topics. It might not be politically correct. It might not be what you want to hear, but it's people's perspectives and it's important to hear people's perspectives. I love storytelling and I think one story can illuminate a million more and really increase our understanding of these topics. So sit back, whether you're watching live or after, grab a drink, take a seat and enjoy. Awesome. We're live. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. That was my first play of my um, of my recruitment show intro. So yeah, cool. Very cool. Always funny. Cool. I love it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you, Sharath. And thank you very much for joining me, Sharath. I thought I feel it's proper to give you a, a little intro. Um, and so, so let me intro you a little and then we can we can and we can dive yes. in. So you are, and I'm gonna read it off your LinkedIn here, you're the leading expert on intrinsic leadership. Um, and and you consult and work with many different international organizations, which I think is great. And I believe lecture at Oxford and Cambridge as well on intrinsic leadership. Plus you have an ABE. Uh, so congratulations. And I guess that was the last cohort that um, that Queen Elizabeth would have uh, oversaw. Yeah, well, it was actually it was a very moving story. I got a, you know, you get, you get a sort of warrant for the honour and uh, it was signed by the Queen about, um, and I got it about three days before she passed away. Wow. So wow. it was quite, I mean, it's physically, so I'm obviously going to frame it. But yeah, it was very moving. And I think, you know, I'd been, yeah, when I came to this country, I, um, I, I still was trying to understand the, the role of the royal family actually, and and the purpose of it, and so on. But I think seeing the you know, the work of the pandemic and how how important a pillar they were, I think it, it yeah it was a very special moment actually seeing that. So. Yeah, amazing. What what did you get it for? So I um, I spent ten years um, uh, just working on a founding an organisation called Stir Education, which was all about trying to help teachers in emerging countries, countries like India, East Africa, um, Indonesia find their motivation again. Um, it reached about, about 200,000 teachers, about 35,000 wow. schools, about 7 million children. I'm not a psychologist by background. I have a business background, um, much like you do. But getting thrown into this problem and knowing we had to find a way to, to address it, um, it was an incredible journey. And um, that's what really gave me the foundation what I do now, which is this work on intrinsic leadership. But it all came not from fancy boardrooms, but by really getting my hands very dirty, actually, in, in some of the the world's poorest areas trying to figure out this problem. Wow. So how did, so, so you, and, and to solve the problem was you felt teachers lacking the motivation to, to teach in the appropriate way or? Yeah, did... so I think what was, I think what my, my, my work and my research is, is, is shares one finding, whether we're talking about corporate life or education or whatever domain, sports or culture, you know, I think almost everyone goes into a career with a high degree of intrinsic motivation. I'm very clear about that, but it's the culture and organizations around them that often lead that to, to reduce over time and to vanish over time. And so a lot of this was about how do you know, I've, I've rarely met a teacher who went into wreck a child's life, right? And most of the teachers that I, I saw and what with, you know, they, they went in for the right reasons, but the system around them conspired um, to help them lose their motivation. That, it's very true in corporate life. So what I spent 10 years trying to figure out was how to try and reignite that motivation, help them reignite their own motivation without using financial incentives. It wasn't money that was right. the main 
the main problem. It was something a little bit deeper. Interesting. It's true. I was speaking to a friend today, actually, we're talking about uh, school. We both have kids and, you know, thinking about what school and what environment to put them in is crazy. And we were both just started to talk about our own experience at school. And I had a great experience at school. And, and I think because there was a few teachers that really, like, I don't know, they, they, they really cared, but they were like, make, they make an impression on you. Um, and it, it's interesting. It's just, it's, it's so impactful um, if you're lucky enough to have a teacher that really cares. But then equally, you know, if you don't, again, like that really affects your, your experience and, and, and stuff at school. Yeah, and I think what, what I, I do a lot of work on this idea of nurturing, Lewis, and this idea of nurturing potential, I think it's different from talent. So how do we have that forward-looking view of who someone is and help them realise that? And I think teachers are the ultimate nurturers. They can they can take us to places we wouldn't have got to otherwise. Um, interesting, I think a lot of teachers and a lot of corporate leaders, it's not about technical skills. It's not necessarily just about how well they teach English or maths or whatever it might be, but actually how they inspire someone. And I spent a lot of time when I wrote my book thinking about what makes great teachers, but also what makes great leaders nurture potential well as well. So what's the difference between potential and talent? So I'm, I'm open you... to be, yeah, I'm open to be challenged. I know you work yeah, in this. Yeah, area, no, it's so interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so I, I, I personally think that we've spent too much of our time as a world um, and what organizational life thinking about talent. And I think talent is, in my my view, is, is fully formed or close to fully formed. It's a stock, right? So we take, you know, we, we hire someone because they've got a set of experiences. Do you mean you're, you're, you're born with it, for example? Like you've got a talent in something and... Yeah, I think, well, I think I'm not sure, you could be born with it. You could also inherit some of it or, or develop some of it. But it's, to me, I look at it as a snapshot in time. And I think potential instead is a is the journey of where you're going to go over time. And I think we've generally are very short-sighted in companies and organizations more generally today, we tend to focus on maximizing harnessing talent. I don't think we do anywhere near enough on nurturing potential. I define that potential as forward-looking. It's about, you know, who will you be in your fully formed self? And I think the problem with potential, it's highly risky, right? So if you look at, um, you know, venture capital, I'd argue most of that stuff is on really focused on potential, but most VCs around the world have become more and more cautious over time. And they've instead focused more and more on talent and not done enough to really nurture that, that deep potential. It's interesting. If I relate that to recruiting a little bit, mm. you know, you find a lot of people focus on pedigree over potential. Mm. So maybe the pedigree is almost the same as, you know, when it goes to talent, it's like they've done the job before, yeah. uh, you know, and, and it's almost like, you know, they've got the skills on, on paper um, and people feel it's a safer hire because it's something to put their arms around a little bit. It's like, you know, oh, they've done the job before. They've been at a similar firm, but of course, that's not a predictor of success. Though, just because someone's done the job before, it doesn't mean they could be good at. They were good at it, or they're going to be good at it again. But it's a, it's a safe, it's mm. a safe thing. Potential is such, such. Um, it's hard to define, right? It's like I think someone has potential, and I and I always say in recruiting, you know, find someone with potential you know, with a great attitude, mm. highly motivated, and you can teach the other stuff. Yeah. But and it's, think, it's a hard, sorry, go on. No, no, um, so I was gonna say, sorry, but I, I fully agree. And I think when I talked to a lot of, I talked to, I talked to many leaders in, in search lives over the years, and also um, to, to candidates, right, who are often, for example, mid-career, 
And I think there's such a lot of frustration by both sides that, you know, if you look at the candidate side, they're saying things like, I want to reinvent myself. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out where I want to go next. I have been accomplished, but that doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm set in a certain path. And I think a number of, um, you know, leaders in search have told me things like, you know, I wish my client wasn't quite so conservative with a small C, you know, um, I wish they'd be more open to thinking about this more laterally because we can unlock so many more interesting uh, leaders if we were able to do that. And yeah, I think that that question is one that really is going to be uh, important. So let me just give you an example. I started my career in, in strategy consulting and I had a, a boss called David Newkirk, who is a larger than life American in every every sense and really um, a very, very charismatic figure. And, you know, consulting, um, I'm sure you do some work with consult for consultants, but typically the case study is a typical way they, you know, they they recruit for you. They ask questions like how many table tennis balls are there in the world, those kinds of things, <laughs> the main yeah. questions. But but David, he never did any of this stuff, right? He would actually try and figure out something that you were passionate about. You know, it might be wine, it might be tiddlywinks, it could be rowing, whatever. But he would ask you more and more questions about that topic and just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And when I joined the firm, after I got through one of these uh, um, assaults, whatever you call it, the, I just asked him, what, what, what were you doing here? What was the point? He said, Sharon, look, uh, my view on this is that what really matters is that someone has pushed themselves to the limit in something they're deeply curious about. If they've done that, if they've really extended themselves, taken risks, had a, a kind of growth mindset, be open to learning, um, that potential can be transferred to the world of strategy consulting. Yeah. yeah. So it, for me, it me very deeply how I think about, you know, hiring people and what that means. And I think uh, what we perhaps could, could be looking for more in the world of, of search, for example. No, I think so. I, th I think the issue is that you have, and, and let's just maybe talk about all, all levels of an organization. Um, but, you know, like people, certainly in like over the last few years where, you know, you've had COVID, some industries have done better than others, some companies done better than others. But if you're hiring as a middle manager, let's say, you don't want to make a bad hire. Right. Like you just you don't want to make a bad hire. It's risky um, for you as an individual. You don't want to be the next one out the door. And, and, I, and I find that sometimes affects the way people recruit, you know. So, you know, it's quite risky for someone to go hire someone from a different industry because they think they have potential or they might have potential. And they don't work out. And, you know, the CEO comes and says, hold on a second, Lewis. Um, so why did you you know, why did you go for that person from a different? different industry and so I, I think there's also that I think you need the, the leadership to really embrace it and encourage and almost give permission to their whole organization to start to think in that way um, otherwise it's difficult and especially you know like I think the average tenure in a job is like two and a half years nowadays something you know people often maybe not even there long enough mentally whether they realize it or not to want to bring in people to nurture them and develop them. I think I see that a bit. Yeah, I think what we said is very powerful. And I think a couple of thoughts. One is that, you know, I wonder whether there is a way of um, of, of, of opening it up. So I think a lot of times I, I've seen people, you know, with all the right pedigree in your words, and they have the right experience, right, you know, went to the right university, whatever, you know, the, the, the box checking was, but they don't work out anyway. Yeah. And, um, so that happens a lot and there's that kind of you know that that adage that you know you, you sort of hire for skills and fire for values and i think that's often very true so i don't think that's a very foolproof way i've seen lots of those crash and burn those kinds of cases oh, yeah. i so think it's, it's dreadful yeah. yeah yeah no exactly and i think what i wonder is whether we can have a deeper commitment to a nurturing culture on both sides that the employee goes in 
knowing they need to develop certain things and being open to that. But the, um, you know, the um, the employer also thinks about it. You know, I, you mentioned I, I teach Oxford and Cambridge, and for example, at both universities that they're trying to massively widen access to to, to the universities uh, concerned. What that they're realizing as a result is that they need to do more active nurturing when young people are in in the university. Things that they may have taken for granted before, because they said in feeder schools and so on. That yeah. means that actually they've got to play a more active role in the process. So I think what this does, I think if we can try and focus on nurturing potential, it opens up the, the pool of candidates, but it also means that both sides have got to work a little bit more consciously um, on that match once they do start work. I think it's, it's such a wonderful way to go. It's also a great way it feels to keep people. You know, like I, mean, I speak to thousands of people, you know, and about their work, life, career, you know, all of that stuff. And then you've had this in the background, this great resignation which for me is a great resignation from bad companies with bad cultures who haven't valued their employees and, and things like that. But let me tell you, when I speak with people and I'm trying to headhunt them out of companies, people that are happy are way, way harder to move. And, and the happiness bit is interesting. And I think part of that is feeling like, you know, your, your, your manager, your company care and they're mm. helping you and they're investing in your training, development, maybe reskilling, you know, all of those things that I think make a nice nurturing environment, it's, it makes sense. No, I think that to me, that's the biggest shift. My work with leaders is I work across sectors in corporate life, in the cultural sector, in, um, in the NHS, for example, et cetera. The, the big shift, I think, is you know, when I started work about 25 years ago, um, it was very much, you know, a one-way deal. You know, the, the client in my case would jump, I'll say jump, and you'd ask um, how high... <laughs> that's unwound now to a much more of a sense of work being almost like a partnership of marriage where I'm there to fulfill the purpose of the organization, but they're also there to fulfill mine. And it's when it's that two-way street, when both sides see it as that, that give and take, I think we get the most fulfillment at work and the, the deepest in my, my language intrinsic motivation where, you know, employees are deeply connected to the, the organization as a strong sense of belonging and a strong desire to, to carve their own path of the medium term. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's also really interesting that your, it's you know, it's, your your work started with with teachers nurturing young children mm -hmm. and stuff. But it's the same with with with, with adults. We all want to. We all want to. We want that great leader. I always said that um, it's way more valuable to work with an awesome, awesome leader, mentor, than to go for the brand name of the company. You know, like if you're lucky enough to work with just some brilliant brilliant person that's really gonna have way more impact on your career than than whatever google on your cv or something like that definitely and i think you know a lot of young people now for example often they're quite anti-establishment so they don't want to work in a, in a big company whether it's google or pwc or whatever what I, I actually share that same advice lewis that actually don't think of it like pwc think of it as a collection of individual partners and that partner is a real human being they've got uh, ambitions, they've got concerns, they want to make a difference in the world. And I think we can think about work more personally. I think we're onto a good thing. One of the problems I think over the last you know, 20, 30 years is that we've actually dehumanized work. And as a result, that loyalty and belonging isn't there anymore. And I think hybrid working um, has many opportunities, but it can sometimes, if we're not careful, accelerate that trend. And I think what could happen is we almost then like a, end up with work being a bit like online dating, where more and more transaction you go on more if you look at the data online, online data, i looked at the for my book actually for intrinsic 
you know, people are going on more and more dates, right? But the, the match rates are, are plummeting over time. So we've got this very transactional nature where we, we're always looking out for the next best thing when it comes to our, yeah. our dates. We have ghosting and all these things. And I think yeah. if we're not careful, work is going to follow that path. I think what we need to find is that that genuine partnership, that marriage again, where there really is that two-way dialogue, that two-way relationship between the employer and the employee. Interesting. So do you think then the hybrid and or let's say the digital workplace is having a, a negative effect on that? I think it, I think what it does, it increases the, the, the premium on, on being intentional. So I think we can do this. Yeah. Possibly I work with groups like Shopify, for example, who are now almost entirely digital. First, they have no more offices. You have retreat centers that staff can meet up every few months and right. for a few days, but there's no more physical offices. So I think if I think any model can work, but I think if the more it goes towards towards the virtual, the more intentional leadership is going to have to become. And yes, I think that's serendipity and yeah, all of that sort of dead time that we often take for granted in, uh, in 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 interactions. We've got to find a way to consciously. So let me give you an example. You know, I would be in my first job. I'd be you know with a partner at a client meeting. You know, I'd be would probably work several days for that presentation. He would come and do some of the you know the preamble. I'd present a bit. But it was the five minutes in the lift going down the stairs to the taxi where it says, Sharath, look, you did these things really well, but these are things that I would work on. And this is what do you realize why I said X, Y, yeah. and Z at this time? That five minutes was worth all those days of time, right? And unfortunately on the Zoom call, what happens? We all switch off the Zoom call and where it's all over. We've got to we've got to intentionally build those things in. That's why it definitely think it's possible, but it, we've got to be a lot better at our game in this, I think. It's it's it is. You're right. I mean, I um, it's interesting. Maybe we should we should compare that to how Elon Musk is is doing his thing. Complete pulse. It's interesting. Um, I mean, for me, that's one of been the biggest uh, challenges. Like my business, we're global and we are now fully remote. So we have no office. My team are all over the place. And one of the biggest things I've had to to learn to do is is de is, de is be more intentional with my interactions with people. The training, the feedback. Um, you know, I surveyed my team, and the number one thing that came from the survey was everyone wanted more feedback. Mm. You know, feedback mm. about how well they're doing, what they can improve on. They wanted these, you know, these intentional conversations. Mm. And I found actually now I'm doing it way more than I did when we were all in an office together, mm. which is interesting. Yeah. But yeah, really powerful. No, I think I mean all the data I've seen. I, I, I look at a lot of Slack's work, McKinsey's work in this area, but. I think we've actually, the productivity question, I think it's a, you know, I think we've proven pretty strongly we can be as productive working remotely. I think the collaboration question, we've also shown that we can do pretty well. It's the, that I think the mastery element, how do you get better? And I think it's the, um, that sense of belonging and connection that are often the ones that, that, that the areas that take the biggest casualty. So I think yeah. we can re recalibrate and really focus our, our human interactions on those elements. I think we're much better off. And, so all that meeting time we spend off, especially in professional services like that you, know, you and I work in, if we can actually do less of that and actually the time that we do spend is much more intentional on development, on learning, on connection, on purpose. I think all of these things yeah. are very powerful. No, definitely. But I do, I do think, I mean, you know, we're fully remote, but also um, it doesn't work for everyone. Mm. You know, like I'm, I'm also very mindful that there's no one size fits all and, um, and I'd say younger people, I mean, you know, I mean, this is not just a, a younger people thing, but, but certainly when you're early on in your career, mm. uh, you learn so much from, to your point, sitting next to your mm. boss, 
just listening to what they say, how they behave in a meeting, how they present. And, and that's that's difficult. And I, I spoke to a few friends that have teams and of, of people, you know, younger, younger, just started their careers and stuff. And they've they've said that they've really struggled um, mm. if they don't have an office. Mm. They need to get them in. Yeah, or, or you have it fully digital, but you try and meet up regularly and have some of that stuff happening as well. So the ways of doing it, though. So, but it's um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of obviously it's incredible that we can now globalize. We can open up so many opportunities now to find different elements of potential. But I think that it's almost incumbent on us to take advantage of those things and do yes. it more consciously. Love it. So, what is intrinsic leadership? So to me, again, it builds on what we've been talking about so far, but it's an idea that as leaders, we've also, just as we've sort of dehumanized work, I think we've also dehumanized leadership. I think if we talk to a lot of leaders today, they aren't, they don't feel like real leaders. They feel they're, they have been selected, which is great, but um, they don't feel they have the mandate, first of all, to really dare a different direction. They feel they've come in, they've got to execute someone else's plan. It could be a shareholder, it could be a, a governing board, it could be a, you know, whatever it might be. But often they have a deep sense of where they believe the organization they lead should go. And that's not just a you know commercial sense, it's a deep sense of where that organization can have the biggest purpose, where it can make the biggest difference to the lives of customers or communities. But there's often something holding them back. So the first thing I do a lot of work with leaders around is how do they try and articulate that direction very clearly for themselves and the people that match to them. And once they are articulated, actually follow that direction and bring people along. I think it is a much more um, impactful, much more um, grounded if they can figure out what that what that looks like uh, in, in their lives, for example. So that's the yeah. first element. Um, the second element is around how do you nurture potential differently? So think of it a bit like how do you ignite others to come on, on, on the journey with you? And again, I think what's happened is we've tended to think very narrowly in terms of talent, um, rather than think about you know, how do we create a culture where every single employee can realize their potential. So that second part is, is, is sort of, you know, if you think of it almost the, the the minute hand, whereas the direction is the hour hand. And the last piece, that second hand, is really that bit about how do you stay alive and, and motivated and deeply engaged day to day? That's all about culture. How do you build that culture so that that, that can be felt by every employee? Um, and it's, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't motivate someone else. We've got to create the conditions for them to find their own motivation. How do we build that into every aspect of our of our work life so that it comes out and, and people feel deeply engaged in what they're doing uh, in our organizations that. as well? So that's the wheel really of intrinsic leadership that I, I work on. Love that. So a lot a lot of folks, um, you know, you, you hear a lot about like it's important find something you love and you know do it like it's important, like find your purpose. And but a lot a lot of folks aren't lucky enough to do a job that they love. You know, like it's actually quite hard for many people to do something that they love. You know, they have to pay the bills, economics, you know, they need a job. Um, so how, how would you like how would one go about finding their their purpose or, or and maybe it's just a follow up to that is, you know, they're doing something that they can't afford not to do. You know, they're earning good money, they're supporting the family, but their mojo is gone. Like they haven't got that real you know, excitement, like how would you go about, what would you do? Yeah, so it's a kind of short-term answer and sort of a medium, long-term answer. So in the short-term, I'm Indian by origin, so I believe you can fall in love after getting married. And um, that idea that, you know, you, you may have chosen a job, um, 
yeah, it may not be the ideal job for you, but there are lots of ways to try to get your mojo back in the short term. And I think the biggest way, going back to the idea of dehumanizing work, I think we tend to get disillusioned. You know, I spoke to doctors, for example, who they no longer think about the patient, they think about the waiting list target they've got to deliver in the NHS. Or um, a head teacher no longer um, thinks about you know, the community he's serving that he thinks about what offset will stay in the next inspection. Or a corporate executive who no longer thinks about the customer, but thinks about what the quarterly earnings uh, target has got to be if he wants to keep the analysts happy. So in all these areas, we, we've lost sight of who we're trying to help and serve. Yeah. And I define small P purpose with, with, a, with a small P as really how do we help and serve our, um, you know, our, um, our customers every day. And just to give you a little example, I was writing the book in a, in a bar one day. Um, and uh, I was watching out of the corner of my eye, the bartender spending a lot of time at the bar, about 45 minutes with this couple. And uh, I went up afterwards, you know, I wasn't writing very well that day. I just said, what were you doing? What was going on here? And he said, sure, look, that was a middle-aged man and his teenage daughter. The dad was divorced um, and he was on visitation rights. He didn't see much of his daughter. My job had to be to not just serve the drinks, but to forge a human connection. I had to make the dad look cool in front of his daughter so she would want to spend more time with him. The reason I'm saying, you know, bartending is not, you know, normally what we see is a very glamorous job, but every job I think can have that small P purpose if we bring it front to mind. So if you're if you're feeling disengaged for losing a mojo right now, think back to who you're helping and serving. Think of the client, for example, if they're in a search firm or, a, uh, you know, uh, the, the customer, if you're in retail, for example, how are you making their life every day better and i guarantee you just by the sheer you know whether you, you show up in the right way whether you're, you're kind to that person you're making a huge difference in their lives so that might be a short-term mechanism um looking long term i'd look at the direction you want to go in and try and figure out are there I, i'm not a big sort of follow your passion purpose uh sorry person right. but but i'm sort of follow your your um your problem so try and find a problem you're deeply interested in maybe it's something about healthcare, education, or something in the corporate world about, I don't know, the transition to renewable energy, or how do customers think differently, or how do you how do you have better interview techniques if you're in search, for example, whatever it might yeah. be, but something that deeply makes you curious, and see if you can find a way to contribute to that problem. And by doing so, I think you'll find a career path that's interesting and fulfilling in its own right. You don't need to chase it too much. That's, to me, the yeah. big purpose piece. So Love that. Things, yeah. On that big P uh, and the small P, I love too. Um, the big P is interesting because you're, you're talking a little bit, which is a huge topic right now that I, uh, many people ask me is, is, is transitioning into how do I transition into another career or they want to, they want to change career. They're not sure how to do it. And the, the backdrop is, is this interesting book called, um, I forget the author, it's a hundred year working life. And mm -hmm. You, you might know it so you know the, the kind of context you have like you're likely to have three careers in your life yeah. something like that you know 20 years 20 years 20 years we're all working until we're 100 odd or you know whatever it might be um all all, all well set, said but how do you how do you transition and that's the big the big problem i think that a lot of people are facing right now is how do i do it what do i do um what do, yeah, what do you think yeah, I love Linda, Linda Grattan's work, actually. Uh, Lewis, That's and it. Your life yeah. is, is amazing. And I think the idea, I think the core point you're trying to make as well is we're going to have more transitions, but also we're going to have them at times that are not synchronized with our with our peer group. So before you have these, you know, very linear stages of, you know, studying, working, retiring, 
Um, now we're going to be doing them at wildly different times. So I've probably been through probably five or six career change, maybe five career changes since I left university about uh, 30 years ago. So, right. And so um, 25 years ago. So that kind of idea that we're going to shift careers a lot more as well. So I think the key thing, having gone through a recent career change myself over the last couple of years, one of the really reassuring things should be that, you know, we don't we don't lose everything when we, when we change careers. We we take a lot with us, and I think the more that we can try to keep a very broad social network of people we work with and think and also socialize with, it can really help us see a broader a broader pattern. And what I've seen the people who make career changes really well is they they take something from the the old world or the re previous job and bring it to the new, but but take it in a, in a different direction. So my own example is, is maybe an interesting one that, you know, as I mentioned, I became an expert in this area of intrinsic motivation because, because of this work with teachers, but I realized what I was learning was actually very universal to almost any organization or leader in life. And so wrote the book that was a very broad book. Now I try and consult and advise in that area, but I wouldn't yeah. have got it without that, that deep throwing myself in a, in a very specific problem that was different. So yeah. it's almost like a currency convert to how can you try and convert your previous currency into a new one and also have networks around you that can help you make that transition. Those are the two things I found really, really important for transitions. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's 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 really true. And I think a lot of a lot of folks I speak to, and just just building on that, you know, go speak with folks that are doing the thing that you want to do. You know, how did they get to where they got to? Um, you know, build your network. I mean, with stuff. We talked a bit about um, digital online. I mean, you know, stuff like LinkedIn is is wonderful because yeah. everyone's on there, and you know, you can drop them a note, you can grab a virtual coffee or something, you can start to learn and and stuff. And I think that's important to go speak with people and build that network. Yeah. Um, it's also just also gaining the courage to do it. And by speaking yeah. to people, I think you'll you'll start to build it, and and you'll move in the right direction. Yeah, I want to tell you one thing. I think we tend to do in life, Fados, is to we tend to think what we're doing right now is risk-free and you know that yes. the, the new option is is sort of highly risky i talk a lot about write a lot about this idea of the cost of inaction that if we just keep going on our current path actually not doing anything is probably the riskiest possible thing we can do in terms of our our, our enjoyment you know we, we have about what four thousand weeks to live in most cases uh, but also our mental health our how good a parent we are also a parent um a parent we are a spouse a partner or a friend I think work has a huge impact on our wider lives. So I think the riskiest thing is to, to do nothing, actually. The, I love the trick, that. Yeah, but I think the, the trick, Rose, is not to immediately jump into the deep end, but to take, you know, start in the shallow end first, take a few small steps. So if, for example, you you do those virtual coffees and you find that there's a really interesting direction, let's say in, um, let's say you wanted to go into design, for example, you might want to just try a couple of projects, maybe even free ones you do for that friend you talk to, see what it feels like, actually try it out. What does it feel like sitting uh, day in, day out, designing something, giving something to a client? And then you may say, okay, I really enjoy that. Let me now think about doing, going on a course or trying to see if I can do some kind of um, informal training or changing my role in my current company. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I think that's so true. In people get the, the inactivity part, I think is, it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's almost, it stops a lot of people doing stuff. Mm. You know, like I think the fear of, whether it's the fear of failure, the fear of not, I don't know what it is, but I, mean, I always, when I set up my own business, which was 2010, mm. and, and in the UK, 
wherever you're from in the world, it's funny, like you come to London, the UK, mm. and there's this thing here, it's like a bit embarrassing to fail. Mm. You know, like people don't want to, and it, it stops a lot of people doing stuff. And, you know, I spoke to folks, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about starting my own business. And, and the, f- the first comment from anyone living in the UK was, oh, you know, what happens if it doesn't work out? Mm-hmm. You know, you sure? You know, you're doing well where you are. And then I spoke to some American family and they were like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, and they were like, yeah. well, get another job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a funny one. This, this, just this fear of, of making a change. Because you're right. Look, if you're employed, I mean, your employer can, you know, terminate contract, redundancy and stuff at any moment. Um, so I think there's a quite a liberating thing about taking ownership of your own career. Mm-hmm. I, I call it like being the CEO of your life see over your career mm. you know like make sure you're you know you work on your business which is yourself not just in your business you know like take a step back and just mm. see see what's going on no, i love that Lewis. and i think what i'd say is you know i really agree i have many friends who are late 40s uh early 50s now and they're getting laid off left right and center by large corporates very expensive they're maybe younger who are much cheaper let's be honest in the workforce so i think what i'd say is whether you're working in a large corporate or in a You've got your own business or whatever it is um actually making sure you have your own you're you are the you're your own ceo as you said you're writing on linkedin you're building a network you're seen yeah. as a thought leader in your field that's important whatever the form of, of employment your non-employment that you've got uh so i think we all have to have that mindset and i think what will happen back to linda's you know gratis and transitions we're getting much more fluid between formal employment and in and sort of working for ourselves there'll be people going back and forth all the time and it's more about sometimes it might make sense to work for an organization where the one exists that really meets our purpose sometimes we may want to create our own because we don't feel there is one out there so i'm i'm less worried about the organizational structure but more about that sense of ownership that you talked about yeah it's a very hard thing to get to your head around though especially mm-hmm. like you know in your i'm in my 40s so so are you i mean it's you know, throughout our throughout growing up, I, I looked at my dad. I mean, my dad been was at the same firm for like thirty seven years. Like, like when we were growing up, it was you know you you have a you, you have a career and you stick around for a while. I think it's hard for people to get their heads around like gigs. You know, this mm. gig economy, freelancers, which I think in the US very soon will make up the largest part of the working population. People in mm. gigs and freelance and stuff. It's happening more and more. A lot of younger people coming into the workforce are very comfortable with it, but it's it's um it feels you know if you're not used to it it feels I'd say scary is the right right word but you know like people aren't so comfortable just seeing where the path takes them I think yeah I think the whole gig piece I, I'm not a big fan of the wording because I think it can be the sense of you're basically a body shop I mean like if if you look at say consulting and stuff I do. You could look at it as, you know, I'm doing this more cheaply because I'm not employed at full time on someone's bills. Therefore, it's easier for a company, more flexible. I don't want to work that way. So for me, I see it more as I'm building a work myself, Lewis, that I'm trying to share back what I learn. I'm trying to build a right. You know, I, I, I read LinkedIn a lot. I'm trying to create almost a public good in what I'm doing. And I think that's yeah. the kind of mindset we want to have that each each of each project I do links to a bigger purpose that I've got, which is to help leaders uh, navigate these these really uncertain times, right? So I think if yeah. I go in project by project, it isn't very fulfilling. It's not very going to keep me motivated. But instead, if I think of it as you know, this is a journey and this is a great chance to run a number of, of wonderful experiments with wonderful leaders in so many different fields, I feel I'm contributing something. So I think we need to 
going back to that online dating example, going to be very careful with this gig stuff that it doesn't become a kind of, you know, a, a hugely transactional way of thinking about work as well. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Great point. I think a lot of people need a little bit of help to get their heads around being comfortable doing that way and having mm -hmm. that mindset as well. You know, th think because a lot a lot of folks I speak with, they're, they still have the mindset of, you know, hold on a sec. I don't want my, my CV to look jumpy. Um, you know, I might not get a permanent job. And there's always these things over the years of, of hiring managers being reluctant to hire a contractor for a perm mm -hmm. role. And per you know, you have all of these things that are still yeah. lingering in recruiting. It's, uh, well, they're too overqualified for the job. It's a whole yeah. other conversation. There's still these things lingering. Yeah, so one of the things that used to frustrate me a lot this, in, in this world was, you know, for example, the whole thing about starting salaries. People would always ask, you know, what's your last page? What's your last salary slip? And then it's completely unfair. And that's often very bad for women and minorities is that what, what has your last job got to do with the, the new job? If, if you're, you're good enough to get into the new job, you should purely pay whatever the new job is worth, right, in terms of the, the value the organization believes. So there's a lot of just bad recruiting practice. I think we can, I hope, you know, put to the dustbin of history in, in the years ahead and just rethink this and look at this with fresh eyes. And I think it all starts back to the idea of not trying to think about potential. What really matters is, is that person going to be doing an amazing job in that role two or three years from now or five years from now? If we take that mindset, a lot of this baggage is, is irrelevant, actually. Yeah, true. The salary thing, just to just to linger on that a little bit, because I think it's a great a great point um, to, to to people that, that don't know. So, like a, a number of states in the US, New York particularly, it's illegal for a recruiter mm. or a hiring manager, HR, whoever, to ask a candidate what their current salary is. Mm. Um, so all you can say is, you know, what are your expectations? Mm. Um, the candidate might uh, then then answer. <coughs> what's the role paying and in, and in new york now um you have to put on the job description yeah companies have great. to publish it yeah yeah and I, i'm also a big believer in going one step i'm not sure maybe this is in new york as well but not yeah. allowing the variation of the role to then be negotiated by much a little bit is always a little bit normal but in general you want to try and have pay being very very transparent and i think yes. you know everyone should know what the pc of a company gets right it shouldn't be a secret so um, that idea of that transparency, then we can focus really, you know, that idea that money is really a hygiene factor. We need it. It's important. Um, but really, the core focus should be on making work itself deeply motivating, fulfilling. I think that allows us to move on and focus on what really matters much more. Yeah, no, it's great. But I, do, I do think you have to be clear on it. I mean, so I listened to a great video from Simon Sinek. He was talking yeah. about pay, um, you know, and, and his, his kind of point was there's levels to the game. Mm. You know, what, what are you getting? And I think it. It needs to be communicated. You know, a, a job, you know, there might be a pay range in the job. Mm. Now, advertise the pay range. Advertise the pay range. I mean, who wants to be paid bottom of the range? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah, yeah. you want to be paid top of the range, right? Why would you want to come in and get paid bottom mm. of the range? But it needs to be defined. Like, you know, what do you need to get? Like, what, what years of experience? Mm. I mean, his point was, you know, someone had been through a few economic cycles. They, you know, they, they've got war stories. They're adding a lot of you know, all this value they're bringing with versus someone that hasn't. And, and his view was that this person is more valuable than this person and therefore should be paid more. Um, so, so again, I, I would disagree with him in a sense. I like, I love Simon's work, but just, again, if, if that person was right for the role, what does the previous experience, again, this is why even some of our greatest minds get trapped in this thinking about talent, which I think is outdated. But I think we need to look forward at the potential. And I think what the person did before is, 
somewhat irrelevant if we're hiring them into the role, if you believe they're capable. What we want to be looking at is how fast can they can they grow? So I think that's a yeah. lot of that, I think, is old school thinking, if I was being playing devil's advocate there. No, no, I hope I haven't misquoted Paul Simon Sinek on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, 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 it's interesting. Yeah, I think they're, it's, it's, a t- it's, a t- it's a tough one. It is a tough one. I think pay ranges are irrelevant. I mean, to, to if you know, if you kind of follow your point, yeah. um, why have a range? You know, I mean, you, this role is worth, we'll pay you X if you'd like to apply. Awesome. Uh, on, the, on, the, on, on this basis, if not, fine. You know, I, I, I'd be quite, I'm, I'm quite a fan of that. I think this is what it's going to pay. Fine. The other, the other, sorry, go on. No, no, sorry, I was agreeing with you there. Um, I really prefer oh. that, that way of just being a single number and, and being transparent about it as well. The, the other thing, though, in the, you know, in the wider context is, like, it's really hard to find good people right now. Mm. You know, many open vacancies, um, hard to find the right person for your job. And so, and so then suddenly there is competition. And okay. although you are publicizing X, you might have to go a little bit higher to get your person. Yeah, or they get counter offered. Yeah, this I agree, but I think I think I've seen is certainly before the pandemic. Oh, sorry, during the pandemic, a lot of throwing money around. And that's not going to be sustaining same in this economic environment. I think if we're going to compete, we should compete on the intrinsic value of the deal. How you know how good is our development of your mastery? How will we nurture your potential? What are the mechanisms? And those are much more compelling. I think the people who are going to be attracted to that kind of approach of throwing money around are probably not the people who are going to stick around. And you're just you're going right. to reinforce that cycle so again i think we're gonna we're gonna you know, short circuit ourselves as well so i just be, be careful i think there's a lot of evidence that um you know really money is a hygiene factor we want to get it right pay fairly and transparently but that shouldn't be the reason we we get people into work and i think we've been been i think guilty of the pandemic of overplaying that card and it's gonna unwind right now with these more difficult economic conditions yeah we well, see it accentuated a bit in tech Mm. You know, to your, you mentioned VC, VC mm. backed firms uh, earlier on. I mean, you know, you're seeing it in the big tech firms, they all overhired crazy salaries and they're now cutting. Yeah, and there's yeah. this whole VC backed part of the market that's very opaque yeah. um, that's having the same issue. Mm. Yeah, so Google salaries have increased by about, what, 40% over the last uh, seven years there's no reason why these have gone up so much versus the rest of the sector but you're just saying that's a well-run company but it's so easy to get into this this spiral actually and the problem is that isn't unlike it's unlikely sustained going forward yeah no true love it to, to wind up what are some of the things you're most excited about for 2023 or some maybe some trends that you think will continue I think we're, we're going to have, I think, look, great companies and obviously are going to keep surviving and thriving. Um, they'll need to be a bit creative and think about the resource um, more fully. I think, you know, many of the things about the pandemic period, obviously we had to get through, we had to get through globally, but they, they cause a number of challenges. I think that we we really lost the, the value of work sometimes. I think that work, um, the sense that it was really important part of our lives, that got devalued. I think the importance of... Um, really thinking about the broader proposition rather than just the money side of it, I think also got devalued a little bit. And I think the um, the flexibility piece around hybrid working was very powerful and I think will stay, of course, which is a great thing. But I think we, we lost the, the that importance of co- um, connection and belonging. So I think we you know we experimented, we did a lot, we, we moved forward. I think we've got to recalibrate a bit now and try and really center what matters in, in the working environment. And that's what I'm, I think some good leadership will really help us do in 2023. Yeah, 
great point great point what a lovely place to end on thank you thank you so much when is well how can people find you and when is your when's your second book coming out so I'm hoping I'm still uh, working on the book actually but I think 2024 I'm hoping early uh, that year it's uh, about a year from now um, this as well but please fo follow me on LinkedIn Sharath Jeevan OBE and um, yeah I write a lot there and love thoughts and ideas on there my first book is called Intrinsic and um, yeah love to keep the conversation going with anyone who's passionate about these issues so awesome, awesome. thank you so thank you so much for joining me I really appreciate it um, thank you everyone for watching and listening and yeah have an awesome end to the year um, and look forward to, to 2023 thanks so much thanks Liz. thank you so much for watching hope you enjoyed it please do not forget to subscribe in all the usual places youtube spotify apple podcasts anywhere you like to watch or listen to a podcast any comments or feedback please drop us a dm if you've got anything that you want us to discuss again feel free to get in touch have a wonderful day.